Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers Show. I could not be more excited at the guest I am able to bring you today. We have with us Shep Hyken, who is an internationally sought after speaker, a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of multiple books. Um, I've read many of his books, including Moments of Magic, The Cult of the Customer. He's got uh, like five books all about being amazing. And he's got another brand new book that is not even released yet that he is going to give us a preview of on the show today. So I'm so excited to welcome Chep Hyken. Thanks so much for being here. And please let the audience know anything else that I might have missed in your impressive background. You know, all I can tell you is that my mom would be very proud of me right now based on that introduction. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> You're most welcome. See, my parents always wanted me to be an attorney. So no matter what else I do, <laughs> it's never quite the so, same. But you didn't go to law school and then tell them you didn't want to be an attorney. I right? did not. Did you, did well, you there do you that? go. So they got to be happy with that. <laughs> Great. Well, again, welcome, Shep. You know, you and I have so much in common in terms of the things that we think about and focus on. And, and I know I've been very influenced by your writings about how to think about engaging with customers, understanding customers, and really being a desired brand, helping, you know, companies become brands that customers really love. Let me just start by asking you, what, what's your perspective on that landscape? And what do you see in the marketplace? Is that something that most companies, they've already figured that out? That's motherhood and apple pie? Or is that a concept that still isn't fully sunk in at, at a lot of companies? The whole concept of customer experience? Yeah, it, they figured it out. Uh, they aren't necessarily delivering on it. So every year I do this trends report, an article on like what I see the trends coming. And for the last, I don't know how many years, I've had my number one trend be the exact same. Customers keep getting smarter and they understand what great service and a great experience is. And they're starting to really get used to. And I know this is right in your wheelhouse, the digital experience and companies recognize that this is really important. However, some are slow to be able to adapt to the changing needs of the customer. And here's why most of them are just simply looking at their competition. They're not looking at the whole industry or, or the whole world. They're just looking at their industry. And the result of that is uh, our customers are learning what great customer service is from other players in other industries that have nothing to do with what this company might do, but now they expect it from that company. So Howard, I'll ask you, what is your favorite company to do business with? Mm, I guess I'll throw out Amazon is certainly okay, one that I, ding, I love ding, doing ding. business with. That is the correct, <laughs> that's the correct answer. Yes. Oh, hey, all right. So, 99% of the people will probably say Amazon. And if I can say it a different way, well, you know, what's not only, you know, what's your favorite company to do business with because you feel good about doing business with them and they're easy to do business with. If I start adding adjectives in, most people say Amazon. Well, here's what's happened. The Amazon effect, if you want to call it that, has permeated into virtually every industry. If I'm a manufacturer and I'm uh, selling to a business, so I'm B2B, that customer may be expecting the same type of experience they get at Amazon. They want confirmation when their order is placed. They want to feel they're getting the information. You know, Amazon, that's what they do. Immediately send you a confirmation. They send you an email to tell you the item shipped. They give you the tracking number. They send you pictures of it leaning up against your door when it's delivered. That's all about information. And mm -hmm. our customers, regardless of 
what we do, they're expecting that kind of an experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember even more than a decade ago. So before Amazon had quite the level of customer excellence they have today, but even still when they were leading, I remember doing a project with a big manufacturer of medical devices. They were selling like MRI machines and things like mm-hmm. that. So these are devices that cost you know, anywhere from the high six figures to a million, million five, two million dollars, something like that. And they're selling to hospitals. And I remember interviewing customers and hearing from them, how is it that I order a $12 book from Amazon? And they tell me every step of the way where that book is and when I'm going to get it. And somehow I order from this company a $1.5 million MRI machine. And six months later, they still can't tell me when the damn thing's coming. (laughs) (laughs) That's my point. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, precisely. So what do you think is holding companies back from, it seems a little, uh, most people have that experience. So we know from our own experiences as consumers that that's desirable. What's holding companies back from getting there? Well, they just don't understand the process of how to look at their journey map and take each of those touch points and recognize not only how can we make it better, but what is the customer expecting at that touch point? Just like you said, you know, I buy a million and a half dollar MRI machine. Can't you at least tell me uh, where we are in the process of, you know, when I might receive it, that kind of thing. And yet here I am like buying that 10 to $12 book and I get all of that information. I'm blown away. I've just got to tell you, as I was listening to your example, I'm thinking I haven't been doing a lot of flying recently, as many of us haven't, uh, because we don't travel quite as much. But I can tell you, I'm sitting at the airport. I'm looking for the plane. And I know we're supposed to leave in 10 minutes, but there's no plane at the gate. And yet the gate agent hasn't said, hey, everybody, we're going to be late. You know, information is key. And I know that's if there's nothing else you hear from this, find ways to give your customers, clients, whatever you want to call them information that makes them know that something's happening with whatever it is they're buying. And and that creates trust and it actually gives you some type of a connection with them. Yeah, I I totally agree. And just finding those points of pain and then elevating them can be it can be 75 to 80 percent of the work. I I mean, one example that I saw one airline speaking of the airline industry finally address, but I think most airlines don't is have you ever been had that experience where you're waiting for your bag at the conveyor belt and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and your bag doesn't come? And after you wait for 40 minutes and there's no more bags, you go to that little office and then you I wait feel in so line sorry and you for get that to your front and they go clickety clack and they say, oh, yeah, your bag missed the flight. So it was in their computer for crying out loud. They knew the moment I walked that they knew the moment that plane took off that my bag had missed the flight. But they didn't bother telling me and they made me sit and watch other people's bags go around and around and around for 45 minutes. Such an easy point of customer pain to solve. And yet many, many airlines wait till you let them know that they've lost your bag before they start a, to start the process of getting it back to you. Yeah, I won't tell you the name of the airline, but their initials are AA for Anonymous Airlines. Or American Airlines, for that matter. (laughs) It it was American Airlines. And I walked off the plane. And the moment I did, I received a text message that said, we are sorry, your bag did not make this flight. Contact us to let us know what your address is because it's on the next flight and we'll deliver it to you. And I thought, wow, I actually just wrote an article about this experience. And back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, it was about just giving me information. They have the information go ahead and give it to me. And they did. You know what? I wasn't happy that they lost my bag, but I was so happy by the way they handled it. And as a result, here I am talking about my great experience about lost luggage. (laughs) Well, and you know what? Honestly, if I got that message, I'd be happy. 
because they'd be like, oh, great. So I don't have to go wait for my bag. I don't have to deal with it in the Uber. You'll just, I wish, I wish the airline would always do that. Lose my luggage every time and just bring it to my, to my destination. You know, of course, I don't want the stress of having to wait. But I guess all I'm trying to say is that they're already bearing the expense, which I'm sure is not good for them, of having to actually deliver the bag. They can turn that into a, a benefit for me as a traveler because now my bag's being delivered. I don't have to deal with my bag instead of turning it into a burden by making me go through all this hassle. So American Airlines, kudos to them for doing that and leading the way. And hopefully we'll, we'll see that become standard. Yeah. But as they say, don't go away. There's more. So I did contact them. I think they asked me to just respond to the text with my address. But what I did is I picked up the phone or I had the phone in my hand actually. And I dialed American Airlines. I said, hey, I got this text. I've got a problem. The next flight coming in is going to be a little bit later. By the time you get it to me, I will already uh, be into well into my activities. I have to be dressed a little bit nicer today. And they said, no problem. Just go to the store and buy whatever you need. And I said, well, like, is there a budget? They said, let your conscience be your guide. Basically, they didn't say it exactly like that. Uh, but they were so genuinely nice. And they said, look, we know this is a hassle. If you need something, and I said, I need a sport jacket. I don't need anything else. I have jeans on. I could wear jeans and a sweater, but I've got to throw a sport coat over it because I'm going to be meeting with some clients. I went to Nordstrom Rack. I bought a sport jacket for a few hundred dollars. I sent them the receipt and that check was, I don't know, maybe two weeks later, I received a check. It couldn't have been better. And here I am, you know, talking great about American Airlines. And by the way, they are my favorite airline. I fly them all the time and I'm concierge key and the high level and all that, but I'll keep flying them because of experiences like that. By the way, they're not perfect. No airline is. There's going to be outlying situations that make me very upset, but that's an example. Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations for having a good conscience on that. Cause when you started to tell that story, I'm thinking, so Armani or Versace, which one should it be? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that they would probably, I mean, they made it real clear. So one of the things that I think is important for us to chat about now is because you asked, how does a company do this? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the new book. So let me tell you about the final chapter in the new book where the rubber hits the road. We have a process for our clients to go through and we put it in the book. There's this process and here's how it goes. Uh, real quickly, you ask, why would somebody do business with me instead of someone else? Like, you know, what makes us unique? And it's not, don't say like, oh, we've got great people or we've got great service because competitors can say the same thing. Find out what really is unique. At the time, I don't know if other airlines did what American Airlines did for me, but if that was at the time something they did that was unique, that would be an example. A medical system that has an MRI machine that you sold or, or helped sell back then, if they're the one of 10 machines in the whole world, well, I want to, and I have a problem that needs that machine, that makes that medical center unique. So find out what makes you unique. Number two, look at your competition. What do they have that you don't have? And could you have it? And if you could have it and you want to do it, don't just copy it. Give it your own personality and your own spin because otherwise you're just a commodity. Then go to the outside. Like I asked you, what's your favorite company to do business with? You said Amazon. Well, ask your colleagues, let's make a list of companies we love doing business with. Why do we love doing business with them? We talked about information, right? So that could be one reason. There could be five, seven, 10, 50 reasons. It doesn't matter. And then look at those reasons and say, could we do any of that in our business? And now you're going outside your industry and that's when you start to disrupt your competitor. And once you say, yes, we can do that, 
and you start to implement or decide what you're going to implement, you go back and you ask that original question. Now, what makes us different and why should someone do business with us instead of them? So that process, as simple as it sounds, not necessarily easy, could take a little while, several meetings, but you start to see the opportunities of what you can do to be different and unique and get your customers to say, I'll be back. Yeah, I think that's huge and really wise. And the process about talking to your customers and understanding what makes you different, I got a real schooling in that, even as somebody who does this with clients, because when my my agency, my consulting company, we rebranded ourselves, I think it's about seven or eight years ago now. And so as part of that process, we did this type of work. We went out, we, we talked to customers to understand what were our differentiators as we were sort of focusing our messaging. And um, what I realized was the thing that I thought was our biggest differentiator was how we drove our development of user experience based on customer research and the whole approach we used for customer research. And what I found when I went, we went and talked to customers is they said, yes, that's very, very important. And everybody's doing that. So the thing that you think is a differentiator, it's important, but it's just not a differentiator. Everybody is either doing it or at least saying they're doing it. Now, maybe the way we do it is differentiated, but at least at the high level messaging, we weren't differentiating ourselves through saying that. It's good we said it because it's important, but it wasn't a differentiator. And then when we asked, well, what, why do you work with us? The one of the number one things we heard was, well, the way you work with us, the way you collaborate with us is so unique. And, and that was surprising me because I thought, really? Like, what do we do? We just, we work on the project with you. We want to make sure it's successful. I mean, doesn't everybody do that? And then we came to learn, well, no, you know, a lot of other agencies, we, we have all kinds of issues and they don't seem to really have our interests in heart and all those types of things. So something that I thought was a differentiator turned out to be common and something that I just assumed everybody would be doing turned out to be one of our biggest differentiators. And I never would have realized that if I hadn't taken the time to talk to customers and really find out what they thought made us different. Yeah. So the uniqueness factor, you have table stakes that you have to do. And that's that part that you thought was unique turned out not to be, that's your table stakes. And then you've got to separate yourself somehow, some way, because otherwise you are a commodity and what could only separate you if you're a commodity is price. Mm. Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. Mm. Now, do you find there are companies that you work with who just have a hard time figuring it out. You know, they, they just do feel like they operate in a sea of sameness. What do you do if you find yourself lacking anything that you can really put your finger on as a true differentiator? Sure. So here's what's really cool. <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but I look back at all of my clients and almost all of them, when they hire us, they're already rock stars. And so they're trying to just stay ahead and just continue what's been working for them. If it's low, it would be like 80% of my clients are already there, but I think closer to 85, 90%. We do get calls from saying, help, we're really bad at what we do. What can we do? And for that, we go in and we do an immersion uh, and try, and we always start with this process of what makes us different? Why should someone do business with us? And then we take a look and we create what we call our mantra with our clients. And that is, what is the vision? If you can narrow it down to one sentence, what's your one sentence vision of what you want your customer experience to look like? And if you can do that, 
you know, we can start to work with you and drive toward that vision. You want to create evangelists. You want to create, you know, customers that want to come back or you want to create repeat business. And, and I believe repeat business is solid gold. But if you can create loyal business and there's a difference, repeat customers aren't always loyal customers, but I'd go for repeat customers quickly as possible and convert them to loyalty where they are willing to give you a chance if there's a mistake, where they're willing to overlook price sensitivity. But you've got to create that experience. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a totally different and unique experience. Let's look at hotel brands. You've got your Four Seasons, very high-end brand. So I'll ask you, Howard, who competes directly with the Four Seasons on a, on an international level? Ritz-Carlton, I guess. Exactly. And you you just like the Ritz or you like the Four Seasons, and there's certain things about them that you really like. Uh, if you go to a Ritz, many of them do look alike. The rooms are very similar. And if you love that, that is maybe the uniqueness factor. If you go to a Four Seasons, you might feel there's other uniqueness factors. But the point is, it's not even about that. It's about, can I give you an experience that you're going to want to come back to next time, every time? That's the goal. Sometimes it's uniqueness. Sometimes it's just the basic experience. I'll tell you a funny story about Ritz-Carlton, which is one of the reasons why I sometimes hesitate to go to a Ritz-Carlton is because I feel like they're too service-oriented and it makes me feel uncomfortable. If you go up to somebody like a bellman in the lobby of a Ritz-Carlton, you say, you know, how do I get to the restaurant? He says, it's on the fourth floor, but I'll take you there. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, let you me know, show you. Let me watch it. Tell me how to get there. It's like, no, I will take you in the elevator and bring you to the restaurant. And I was like, chill, man. <laughs> you know? So again, it's just maybe, I don't know what that, if that's just a weird uh, quirk of mine, but also so I always remind myself of that to think sometimes you think doing more for your customer is going to make them happier. At least in my case, not always. Yeah. So I wrote an article years ago called Stepford Service. Do you remember that movie, The Stepford Wives, sure, which actually the, the original wives. one? came out with uh, Nicole Kidman was in the second one, and it was almost a farce, the second one. Mm -hmm. But in the Stepford Wives, these women were being programmed to basically be servants and say yes to everything. And so I went to this hotel in England, and it's a beautiful hotel. And I real quickly, I recognize I'm in a world of Stepford service right now. <laughs> it's like these are Stepford Wives, but it's Stepford service. You know, and, and I talked to a manager about it. Yes, we say yes. We don't like to say no to a customer. So I thought, okay, without going over the top, what can I ask for that normally I probably get turned down just to see what would happen? And I started easy. Can I get some more tiles? Yes, I'll bring them up. And then I thought, Hey, I really don't want to pay for the Wi Fi, but I need it. Is it possible that you can give me a deal or something on the Wi Fi or maybe just not charge me for it? Cause so many other hotels don't charge for it. Yes, sir. We're happy to do that for you. <laughs> so I just got free Wi-Fi. Okay. When they were charging $20 a day. So it's like. Can you just sign the deed of the hotel over to me? I think I'd like to own this hotel. <laughs> yes, sir. No problem. Here you go. Well, it depends. Maybe they're losing money because all they do is say yes, yes, and more yeses. But it was, it, it was a really unique experience. You know, there's the old uh, line. Yes is the answer. Now, what's the question? You know, and I just interviewed. On my show, uh, a woman named Christine Trippy, and she is uh, one of the top rated managers or was like the number one manager in the Marriott system. And she wrote a book about basically saying yes to everything. And she says, you really can't say yes to everything. But the way you say no is by not saying no. Cameron, um, is it Cam what's his name? Oh, drawing a blank. Uh, he owns restaurants in Ohio. And actually, he's expanded nationally. 
he wrote a book, Yes is the Answer, What's the Question? So this is a common idea. And it's not that you can do everything. It's just you just don't say no by offering alternatives. Do you have a shuttle that'll take me to the airport? And the answer to that is no, we don't have a shuttle. But instead of saying no, we don't have a shuttle, say, let me tell you what our guests do when they go to the airport. Uh, we have three different options for you. It, and, it's, you know, you see you're using alternative language, you're using creativity and giving alternative solutions. And now, now the guest gets to make up their mind which of these they want to use. Yeah, I, I like to play this game with my kids, actually. I, tr- I, I try to see how, inf- how, how I can avoid saying no. If my eight-year-old says, can I go camp in the woods with my friend Phil? I say, absolutely, as soon as you're 16. You know, or, or you, one of my kids says, you know, <laughs> will you buy me a, you know, can, can I have a pony? I'll say, absolutely. As soon as you have a job and enough surplus income, you absolutely can buy yourself a pony. You know, I have to admit they see through it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they don't just go, oh, thanks, dad. But anyway, I do at least try to, you know, point out that I'm not really telling them no. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to teach somebody how to do that, what you just did, that technique is let's exaggerate it and then you'll learn it and you'll get it and it'll, it'll click in your mind and then you'll be able to nuance it for other uh, opportunities to use that technique. Yeah. You know, I, I could see that as a training technique. You could have fun with it. It's just how do you avoid saying no to anything without necessarily saying yes. I love that idea. I think that's brilliant. I do think that it's true that the word no, you know, so much of the way customers respond to us, and this is, of course, what I write a lot about is about emotion, not even rational thinking. So that word no can be like a gut punch to people. And by the way, you can do the opposite. I think you can make the opposite mistake. You can say no when you really mean to say yes, right? If someone says, you know, is the restaurant open for breakfast? And the person says, no, they don't open for another three minutes. Really? You had to turn that into a no. You know, you can say, yes, they're opening in three minutes, you know, but some people's minds, I think people have a natural affinity to be like, they call it like matchers and mismatchers, you know, like people who are always looking for the yes versus looking for the no. But I love the idea of training people, especially who are mismatchers. Mismatchers can be great, though, when you're trying to ensure quality and you want to have someone who looks at the hotel room before the person comes and looks for anything wrong. They see all the things that are wrong, but then they need to turn that into a different skill when they're interacting with a guest to not be pointing out all the, you know, the, the no's in the responses to that guest. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great idea. You've given me, you know, we, we actually have trainers that deliver my content. And I think this is a new exercise where we're going to put that together and get people to ask the craziest questions that you know, you should say no to. Right. So how do you say yes? I'm going to yes. write that down. I don't want to yes, miss I love it. I love it. Later on, I'm gonna say, what were we talking about? While you were right, while you're writing that, I want to mention one thing you made me think of, which is an exercise that we do when you were mentioning looking at your competitors and how do you like, how do you think about how can we do what our competitors do? I find sometimes companies have a little bit of a barrier around doing that. It's almost like, well, we wouldn't do that. You know, so one game we like to play is, is the acquisitions game. We say, Hey, Amazon just bought your company. Now, what would they do? How would they change the Ooh, experience? Very good way of looking so at it. Psychologically, you think of things that you wouldn't think of if we just said, well, how can we be more like Amazon? Because there's a part of people's brains that go, well, we, we wouldn't be. We can't be more like Amazon. We're not Amazon. But if they buy you, you're our Amazon, and, and all of a sudden, you have different ideas. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier about loyalty versus repeat transactions. And I'd love for you to talk a little more about that. How do businesses know, really, you know, we use that word loyalty all the time in business just to mean repeat transactions, right? If, if you fly the same airline all the time, they call you loyal. They even give you loyalty yep. points. Yep. You may hate and that, yeah, and, <laughs> but they and, call and, you loyal. Right. And the, how about the customer loyalty program? Is it a loyalty program or is it a marketing program? 
Right. And that's part of what made me want to, you know, I'd written a number of articles about this, but I never included it in any of my books. And that's what made me want to write this new book. But that that's the point. We want repeat customers. So I may or may not be giving you the answer, but this is part of the discussion right now, I think. I want all of the people in the situation in the moment when they're interacting with the customer or they're they're doing they're creating a proposal or whatever it is, the process is what you're doing right now, the type of behavior, the type of process that's going to get the customer to want to come back the next time they do business with you. And that's that's what repeat business is about. Loyal business requires some type of an emotional connection. Now, sometimes people will do business with you. And I wrote about this in The Convenience Revolution uh, about two and a half years ago. And that book was all about create a convenient experience. And people will want to do business with you more than and they'll overlook price because you just make it easier. Convenience could be I'm closer than the competition. But if the competition moved closer than where I am right now, guess what? Now they're more convenient and they just disrupted me with convenience. So back to the idea of repeat versus loyal customer. Frequent fire, and I use this as the example, frequent fire points and bonus miles and free upgrades to first class and free tickets. If they took away those perks, would you still fly on that airline? And if the answer is yes, well, then you have true loyalty. Mm. And it could be a combination of things. But we have to also say, well, in the airline business that, you know, realize everybody has a frequent fire program. So obviously, if you don't have one, I'm going to go to somebody that at least give me that. So, you know, frequent fire bonus miles, et cetera, et cetera. That's table stakes. And I used that word earlier. But we've got to start looking at other ways that would make a customer say, I wouldn't want to do business with them anymore. And an example, and I'll go back to American Airlines, you know, they have an incredible reservation system. And if you're a concierge key or a platinum or executive platinum, you're used to calling a certain number, being able to have somebody answer the phone and saying, hello, Howard, it's so-and-so here at American. I see you're on a flight today. Is is that why you're calling? Wow. Okay. You don't get that if you call the main number, right? And when people lose their status, they'll say, look, I don't care about the perks. Just let me keep that number. <laughs> and there's an example of we created loyalty and we created this emotional connection where people beg to be able to keep it. And, and I think that's pretty cool, but that's what you're really looking for. One of the other things that, you know, people measure, they measure repeat business. They measure customer satisfaction. And a lot of people want to know how we're doing. And I believe when you typically ask for ratings, all you're doing is you're getting a, a history lesson. What you want to be measuring in addition to that, and I call it the most important measurement is actually whether the customer comes back or not, whether it's repeat business or loyal. We need to measure behavior as much as we measure customer satisfaction, willingness to recommend, how easy is it to do business with, that type of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And are there any distinctions for different types of industries? I know there are probably some businesses who immediately would say they get that that repeat business is core. I think there may be other businesses or product areas where someone says, gosh, you know, um, once they've bought something, it's going to be a long time before they need it again. Or sure. there's some aspect of the business where, A, it's hard to measure because it can be years before the next purchase. Any any guidance for a company that might say, you know, it's, yeah. I'm not the kind of place you come back to every week, so it's harder for me to measure. And is it less important? Are there some businesses where the I'll be back component is less important because of the nature of the the business? So the short answer to the very last part of your question is the I'll be back component is important to every business. However, different businesses, especially in the B2B world, not B2C, 
The B2B world is a totally different type of interaction that you have with your customer. If I decide I want to buy this sweater that I'm wearing, I can walk into the mall and I can find five, six, ten stores that sell, if not this exact brand of sweater, something very, very close. However, if I sell that MRI equipment that you talked about earlier in our conversation, that may be, there may only be four or five companies that sell that type of equipment. So, and that's in the world. Okay. Not just in a mall. And all of a sudden the options I have in the B2B world are much smaller. So I have a client that sells, uh, basically manufacturing equipment. And when you, when they put one of their big pieces of machines, which are millions of dollars into a facility for their customers, it's going to be 10 to 15 years, if not even longer before that machine is replaced. So when they have a sales opportunity and it's time for either to renew and sell them another piece of equipment, if they blow it, it's a generation before they can come back and sell another piece of equipment to them. And they call that, they actually, and this, I learned it from them, they called it a generational mistake because mm. it's, you know, 15, could be 20 years. So it, the stakes in some cases are much higher. Number of customers are much smaller. The purchase price is much larger, but hey, you know. So you have to be planting the seeds of that future generational purchase. I suppose not just in the sale, but in the ongoing experience during those 15 yep. years so that you're the one they pick. It reminds me of that. You made me think of, um, there's a real estate agent that was not the house I live in now, but the house I lived in before that, which we purchased, I want to say 15 years ago. She was the real estate agent for the seller. She wasn't even my real estate. She was the real estate agent for the seller. And she still sends us holiday cards. She invites us to her 4th of July party every year. And we've gone a few times. You know, it's, this is clearly somebody who is hoping that one day I'm going to call her up and say, Hey, I want to sell my house. And she's been cultivating this relationship for more than a decade, presumably with the hopes that one of these days I'm going to call her up and say, Okay, it's time to sell a house. And then, of course, it could be a lot of money for her. Yeah. And that's what great businesses recognize. Uh, I worked for the military in the recruiting area and uh, we talked about how they go about getting people to reenlist. And usually that reenlistment process starts a few weeks before they're getting ready to get out and go home. And uh, at least this was, it was the way it was a number of years back. And the group that I was talking to, I said, when should be the time you start to get them to reenlist? And the answer to that is before they even leave to go to boot camp. Uh, you should be getting them excited about boot camp, warn them how hard and how fulfilling it's going to be at the end. They're going to hate it, but then they're going to love it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And then, uh, throughout the entire process, you're planting the seeds of, we want to keep you longer. And any business can learn from that. At the end of the day, I believe very few businesses are different. They're pretty much all the same. They sell different products. That's why I love when somebody comes out of one of these great business schools like Wharton or Kellogg. And they, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't study to go into that business. But the people that I talk to say, yo, business is business. You understand the numbers. You understand the concepts. It's pretty much all the same. Interesting. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. So I know we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity if there's one other idea that we haven't touched on from I'll Be Back, your book, that you'd want to make sure people know to make sure they come back and buy the book. And then I want to make sure they, they hear how they can get a copy of the book because I, I, you told me there's a way, even though it's not released yet, 
there's a way for them to get an early preview of the copy of it even before. Yeah, not even just the preview. You will actually get the copy before the book comes out. Let me let me tease you with a great idea. And so something that you're really very into and your latest book, by the way, which I have right behind me over there, Winning Digital Customers. That's in my book of the year list right now. I hope nobody supplants you. <laughs> but the digital customer, you know, we're in a digital age. And uh, my survey last year, I, I have this survey I've been uh, doing, and we've just, we're about ready to come out with the next survey, and it'll, all the results will be released in the next couple of months. But we found there's a generational difference. People over 40 love the phone if they're going to call for customer support. People under 40, guess what? They love digital. They love social media. There's not a huge discrepancy between the two, but it's the difference is obvious. The point is you need as a company to recognize your demographics and the type of customers that you have. And I don't care if you're B 2 B, B 2 C, the way you communicate with customers, the way they come to you, you need to give them digital options if that's important to them. And you need to balance it with human to human options. Uh, many times customers, and I just saw a stat today, don't know if I believe it or not, that 83% of customers prefer to go digital first before talking to a human. However, there's a huge percentage, I can't remember what that number was, of people that are disappointed with the digital option, which forces them to talk to a human even if they didn't want to. So I want you to take a look at your digital support. It could be self-service support. It could be frequently asked questions. It could be video tutorials. And if you properly have it set up, you're going to make your customers happy. Otherwise, you're going to frustrate them and create friction. That's one of the chapters that's uh, it's a focus on the digital uh, concept. Yeah, I love that. And I'll, and I'll add that one of our little secret tricks that we always do when we're looking to improve digital experiences is to spend time in the contact centers, even if we're not chartered to do anything to improve it. Because yep. what we want to do is listen in, find those callers who are the people you just described, the people who they're calling because they failed in the digital realm. We want to know why. What was the problem? What let them down? And I find we have to coach the contact center people because the contact center people are all about just solving the problem. Someone calls up and says, I tried to order online and it didn't work. The first thing the person said is, says is, no problem, sir. I'll place the order for you, which is probably great for the customer, but is useless for me trying to understand why it didn't work in the digital right. realm. So we'll coach the contact center people. It'll say, Hey, can you get a little more information? Say, I, no problem. I'll do that for you, but I would love to know for the future. What was the problem? And just try to get a little bit more insight as to what let them down when they were trying to do it digitally. So I'm trying, I'm scrolling through um, a PDF copy of the book because there's a great example of this uh, in Microsoft where Bill Gates decided he wanted to see what was really going on. And he literally went in to the customer support center and he said, I want to take a call. And he answered the phone. Hello, this is Microsoft. William speaking. May I help you? <laughs> he took care of it. And the, the rest of the story is that one of the people that he talked to called back and said, I was talking to this really nice gentleman named William. I would love to be able to talk to him again. But that's what the best leaders, managers do. They spend time at the front line, whether it's in a contact center, whether it's driving around with a salesperson. And what's funny is that in the book, I'll Be Back, which is the book that hasn't even come out yet. And my other book that you mentioned, I believe, Moments of Magic uh, in the introduction, which was the first book I wrote. In that book, I talked about how Anheuser-Busch had their executives once a quarter have to go out with salespeople and do different, you know, whether it be a, a grocery store, uh, restaurants, or they had to go with the salesperson to learn what their different customers were thinking and how mm -hmm. they were responding. 
And I think that's still today as important as ever before. It's huge. Getting that personal experience is, I mean, it's always nice to get your customer research team to give you a presentation, but there's nothing like seeing it in person. I, I know I remember, you know, working at uh, Universal Studios theme parks years ago on the websites and mobile apps and all that. And they made all the executives spend time. Like I remember the chief information officer who was my main client. All of a sudden I'm like, I need to meet with her to go over the project. They're like, Oh, she can't today. She's working the churro cart in the park. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but like, that was her assignment for the day. She had to go spend a day making the churros and, you know, taking the credit card transactions so she could get that real world experience of what the people are, you know, both the customer experience and also what it's like to be, a, to be doing that job. So she could then have that perspective. So I think that's, I totally agree. So great. That's great stuff. So, uh, Shep, let's make sure people know, uh, what they can do if they are. And I, I can't imagine there's anybody listening that doesn't want to read the book. Why don't you just tell them what they should do? What should they do right now before they forget? Write down the URL for the website. It's, it's actually just a page on my website. It'll direct to it. It's www.I'llBeBackBook.com. Now, I no apostrophe because websites don't like apostrophes. It's I-L-L, I'llBeBackBook.com. And if you purchase the book today, You'll get the book shipped to you when it comes out later this year. However, immediately you'll get an email back with a link to the ebook that you'll be able to buy later this year as well, but you'll get it at no extra charge and uh, no extra charge. We send you the ebook. You can download it into your Kindle, your Nook. You can get it as a PDF reading file for your computer. We give you the different options and then you'll be able to get your customers to say, I'll be back. Well, just as soon as you start reading the book. And and is it true that Arnold Schwarzenegger has written the foreword to the book? I'm working on that. So <laughs> Arnold, if you're listening, uh, the book it's not gone to print yet. It's everything's ready. That's why we can give you the ebook right away. But we're holding out, hoping that uh, Arnold will say yes. This is a great book. The governor. You want your customers to say, "I'll be back." Do you know how many movies he used? "I'll be back." That line became a trademark. And he argued with the director. I don't like this line. I'll be back. Shouldn't I just say like, I'm going to be back soon or <laughs> eight movies have the line. I'll be back. And it's sometimes multiple ways. And if you remember in Terminator two, he came back as the good guy and he said, I'll be back. And it took on a whole nother meeting. Well, chef, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you everyone out there for listening. And I hope everyone gets a copy of chef's book. And I really feel that based on the theme of your book, we should end our podcast today by saying, hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.